0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today I'm talking to C. Pam Zhang, the author of How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is out now from Riverhead. For a full transcript of our conversation, check out this episode's show notes on readingwomenpodcast.com and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. Uh, I was so thrilled to talk to Pam about her book, How Much of these hills is gold because I read it the day before we recorded and uh, I finished it and I just had a huge book hangover And I have an interesting relationship with Westerns since my spouse is from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and he has definitely shoved lots of Western stories into my hands because that is his favorite type of American literature. So when I picked up this book, I didn't know what to expect because the story starts out during the gold rush in California, and there's this family. And we start out with two siblings, Lucy and Sam. Uh, Their father has just died and they are now trying to bury him uh, and give him his last rites. But they're trying to find the right place. And they also are looking for two silver coins to put on his eyes um, as part of uh, burying him. And this is definitely just throws you in to the action in the beginning and there are four parts to this book we talk a little bit about that in the interview i don't want to give any spoilers but i did not know what to expect and i felt like i really got into the book in part two when we start looking back at the past of this family's history and uh it's just so good uh and i cannot believe that this is pam's debut novel so pam's bio says she was born in beijing but is mostly an artifact of the united states C. Pam Zhang has lived in 13 cities across four countries and is still looking for home. She's been awarded support from Tin House, Bread Loaf, Aspen Words, and elsewhere, and currently lives in San Francisco. So I could not be more thrilled to bring you my conversation uh, with C. Pam Zhang. Well, uh, welcome, Pam, to the podcast. I am so thrilled to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm
1: very excited to
0: talk to you. So I feel like the question of the hour that most people are asking is how how are you doing right now?
1: Yeah, I have like good and bad days. I think mostly in San Francisco where I'm located, it feels more surreal than anything because um at least my my friend circle here hasn't been hard hit. The city has been doing like Pretty decently since we've been sheltering in place since since March, um, and so everything looks the same when I go outside to walk my dog. You know, there's still people on the streets, just they're wearing masks. So it's it's a little hard to like reconcile that with the reality of what's going on in New York, what's going on around the world. Um, and you know, I only get those reports back from the news and from friends who I can't see in person anymore. So, yeah,
0: and it definitely it's a weird isolation. It factored how the, it's playing out in different areas. Um, my husband's family is from the Bay Area, and so we've been checking in on his granny. And uh, it's just a lot. Yeah. And I feel like they, you know, the Bay Area locked down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It, it is a little scary, though, because I now know of people, uh, you know, people who are well-informed and smart and all that, who are starting to sort of relax here two co-workers of mine who I realized that they were meeting together in person. And I was like, no, why are you doing this? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's nerve wracking and all of the things. I feel like this is just like our continual state and hopefully we are able to press on and people will do what they're supposed to do and stay home. (laughs) I really enjoyed reading as an escape and and uh, as to learn and a wide range of things that books do for us. And I just finished your book yesterday and I go walk on the service road that's empty and I finished the book and I just like, I had all of the feelings that you do at the end of a wonderful book going on this journey with this family. So I'm very excited to talk to you about your debut today. How much of these hills is gold? Uh, so, how has it been like publishing your debut? I feel like that's always a very special occasion.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I'm just going to keep harping on the theme of surreality during her conversation, but um, <laughs> that's been the main thing. You know, there was some grief at the beginning over not being able to like go out and celebrate, but that kind of dissipated because as unfortunate as this is, I have to remind myself that the whole point of writing a book is that books live very long lives and they can find readers for years and years and years. Um, and I'm honestly far more worried about the, the health of indie bookstores yeah, because they, they've always been hanging on by a thread and It's just really important to support them in this time, which I actually feel like people have been doing more so because Amazon is unreliable for for books and for a lot of things. So, you know, on a positive note, maybe we'll come out of this pandemic with an increased awareness of our purchasing patterns and which local businesses we're supporting.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, bookstores doing uh, live events and different things to support authors as well as supporting the indie bookstores themselves have
1: you been doing some live events like that online oh yeah I think I've done about 10 or 11 of them now wow yep I'm now a pro at setting up one (laughs) corner of my house to look presentable
0: it's basically like the booktube life or something right (laughs) (laughs) I actually purchased your book through um, bookshop.org I love them For my local indie, because I was just like, I I need I need this book. Several of our contributors and uh, my friends online were reading it and were like, Kendra, you need to pick up this book. So I feel like there is a lot of love and support for especially you know debut authors. Your book came out like right in the peak of you know chaos as people were trying to figure out the alternatives. So there's been so much love for it, which. I think it's pretty great.
1: Yeah, that's that's amazing to hear. And I, I will say, I hope this doesn't sound too narcissistic, but you do buy the book. The cover is so beautiful in person. And that's like one of the little twinges I feel is um, there was such an amazing team of illustrators and graphic designers and directors that worked on the cover. And it has like this like, very cool foil effect that changes in the light. And I'm like, no, people aren't going to be able to wander into a bookstore and see that beautiful artwork um, in the same way.
0: Oh, yeah. And had does such a great job with their covers. And I love how there's like sparkles of gold and the tigers on the cover. Yes, yeah. And these are actually my favorite colors <laughs> or chip <bling. laughs> We made it just for you. Uh, They did. I am sure that's what was going through people's minds. Um, But it is very, very beautiful in person. So I highly recommend that people order copies for themselves and check that out. But like we mentioned, this is your debut. So how long were you working on your debut and how did it come to find a home at Riverhead?
1: Oh, man. So I suppose I began working on it in the early half of 2015, which feels like several eras ago, right? Because yeah. it was one, before pandemic, which is now hard to remember a time before. Um, and two, it was also before the 2016 presidential elections in America. So it was just a very different state of mind in which I was writing this book.
0: Yeah. And did you like work through several drafts as you were writing the book?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so many drafts. Um, what I did, which I think is now my thing, is I wrote the first draft sort of very quickly without Going back to self-edit, really, I just was pressing forward for as many days as I could. And then when I had that first draft, I put it away for several months. I actually wanted to more or less forget about it so that when I came back to it as an editor instead of as, as a writer, I could attempt to see it through fresh and critical eyes And I actually ended up throwing away most of the first draft because a lot of it, I truly did not remember what I had put down. It felt like a fever dream of writing at first. Um, And a lot of it didn't make sense. And so I've written many, many drafts over a dozen. And each time I kind of have to start writing from the beginning.
0: So your book includes four characters of, uh, that are of this family, and each of them is so vivid and distinct. Uh, did one character's voice or perspective come to you to the forefront uh, more so than others, and where did you start writing their story?
1: It's, the book is largely told through Lucy, the older sibling's perspective, um, and she's always been closest to me. But the interesting thing is Lucy and Sam uh, came to me as a pair. There was never a Lucy without a Sam or a Sam without a Lucy. Um, and they just arrived in that first scene, almost fully formed.
0: Oh, wow. that's I think that's absolutely fascinating. But having read the book, it, it does make sense because their their fates are just so closely tied to each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've always been deeply fascinated by Sibling relationships, certainly, but I think um, any sort of friendship or, or relationship between two people who are constantly being sort of like compared and contrasted to one another, um, there's just a lot of friction and energy and, and just deep fascination for me in those kinds of relationships. Yeah. And the way that
0: you structure the book really aids the storytelling. And it starts off with uh, Lucy and Sam's father having died and them trying to bury him and carrying him at different places. And then we jump back and forth in time. Uh, How did you work out the structure of the book? And how many like, what was your process for just figuring out how to tell the story?
1: You know, the structure was always there from the beginning. It was always four parts. It always did this thing where, without giving too much away, it sort of starts in the book's present tense, and then it kind of has uh, two sections that go farther and farther back in the past and sort of resumes where it picked up in the present tense. And so I think I I was thinking a lot about how to play with the genre of the Western, which is like very action, adventure, pulpy, right, but subverted. And so you know, some of the strengths of the Western is that I I honestly love plot. I love adventure. And the story does begin with a bang like that. There's a mission, um, there's violence, there's movement. Um, But in order for it to not fall completely into those genre tropes, I realized what I needed to do that the classic Western perhaps doesn't is then slow down and investigate the roots of why these characters and why this family act in the way that they do. And so it was important to investigate the parents' stories, which um, required a kind of a structural way to to investigate, because the two children themselves don't know everything about their parents.
0: Yeah, I definitely felt that reading it. And my my spouse is obsessed with that time period of literature. And so he has... Really? Yes, it's, bless his heart. He... <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually met arguing about American literature and, and whatnot. So I've had to read a lot of Western literature. No um, way. Yes. So I was like, oh, immediately like, oh, I know this time period, you know, San Francisco and the gold rush and different things. Did you read a lot of Westerns? Is that something that drew you to that time period?
1: I read so much Little House on the Prairie growing (laughs) up, by which I meant, you know, the entire series is something like nine books, and I read the entire series like at least 10 times uh, beginning to end. So that was my my first and probably most important introduction to the Western because I was reading it when I was right, like six years old. Um, And I do love Mary McMurtry's Lonesome Dove as well. And John Steinbeck had a big role to play in my literary education
0: there I feel like there's so many western kind of writers that I, I don't feel that I haven't seen too many people especially like women like head-on like tackle and I really appreciated that part of your novel and I really I like the word subverts very much what you do throughout the course of the novel
1: yeah it's in, in some ways I wanted to go in there like like I'm a, a raider and just take the best parts of the Western, the ones that most appealed to me, and dispense with the parts that I don't enjoy as much and and use that for my own purposes.
0: Yeah, did you do some research as far as the time period as well while
1: you were writing? Yes and no. I think research has a really curious relationship with fiction writing um, for me. So because I went through the public a school education in California for some years of my childhood. I had kind of a foundational understanding of the history of this t- of this area of the world and a little bit about the gold rush, a little bit about the Chinese immigrants that were here. But when I began writing this book, I was actually living very far away from California. I was living in Bangkok, Thailand and that distance was really power a really powerful tool for me as a writer because what it allowed me to do was to hold the facts, of the history at arm's length, a little bit, because what I was really interested in doing in this book was reimagining mythology more than factual history, right? And it's harder to do when you feel too close to the subject matter. So I wanted to evoke the feelings I got from the West, I wanted to evoke the texture and sort of the broad strokes of the place. But I wanted to treat it as an Impressionist painting more than a photograph. Um, and so then in subsequent drafts and revisions of the book, I did go back and do you know, actual historical research and make sure that certain things lined up, uh, make sure that I was doing due diligence. But I think it's also important in writing fiction to have spaces where you put the research away for a bit.
0: Yeah, sort of like you absorb it like osmosis and then it, you kind of pull out what you need as as needed. Yes. I love that. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Reading Women is sponsored by A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps by Diane Shaw. This book is an entertaining true life memoir of Diane Shaw, the first female sports journalist for a major national daily. Diane details her experiences breaking the glass ceiling in sports journalism and laying the path for today's female reporters. Diane went on to write for the New York Times, Newsweek, GQ, Playboy, and Esquire. She has also written four mystery novels. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps offers behind-the-scenes details of stories of a trailblazing career and the prejudices facing female sports writers during the 60s and 70s. Publishers Weekly called Diane a trailblazer for female sports reporters her memoir, an earnest and witty memoir that serves as an astute look into the world of sports journalism. Right now, for a limited time, Red Lightning Books and Indiana University Press are offering an exclusive free chapter download for listeners of this show. Visit iupress.org slash jockstraps reading. That's iupress.org slash jockstraps reading to download a special sneak peek. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Dan Shaw is available wherever books are sold. And all of the information for this title, including the link for the exclusive download, will be linked in our show notes. I really love what you said about Western because as, as, as I was reading, I could feel that folklore-like feel, the romanticization of the West. But as you read it immediately, like you kind of pick that apart. And you kind of give it a nice dash of of reality, in a sense, um, with some of the things that happen. And I don't want to give any spoilers away. But also, I feel like one of the great things about this book is that most of the Westerns that I have read... Uh, are told from the perspective of white people. And your book focuses on a Chinese American family that I I feel like so many people don't understand the importance of Chinese immigrants and their critical role in the story of the West. Uh, Why do you think that so many people often overlook that important part of history?
1: Right. And I'm so glad you brought up the, the traditional white male perspective in Westerns because The funny thing is, um, you know, there's what we learn in the history books, which is political, right? People have chosen the facts that show up in history books, and it is uh, they are picked through. It's it's not an objective um, sort of survey of everything that happened. And between what's in the history books and what is sort of propagated as the mythology of the West through fiction, through narrative we get this slice of the West that is overly narrow, because in truth, there were people of color, there were immigrants, there were native people. But because, right, the famous cowboys that we know through movies and shows are like white shoot 'em up, up uh, like very hyper-masculine men, that's who we think populated the West when that wasn't the truth. And so uh, for me, it was, it was really important to me to try to reclaim a piece of, a piece of that history for people like myself and like my family. And I just hope that people reading this kind of wake up a little bit to the realization that, you know, I love Lonesome Dove, but Lonesome Dove is not any more realistic, a portrait of the West, really, than than my book is. Um, I actually remember, I'm trying not to spoil that book too much, but there's like this key scene in Lonesome Dove um, where there's like a nest of snakes that comes out of the river and I really loved that scene and started googling a little bit about snakes and found all these sources that were like okay that's impossible that never could have happened (laughs) and you know it's such a small thing but it truly did open my eyes up to the fact that hey don't take everything you've learned about the west at face value there are other stories here stories that have been repressed
0: and that's I I love Lonesome Dove as well we I don't know why I watched the miniseries as a small child. I don't know who thought that was a wise decision, but. <laughs> oh, God. We would always watch it over and over. And that's something that has stayed with me. But reading your book is very much about the stories of the people in the West who equally belong to the West in that way. The stories that have been neglected, that haven't been told, and I don't want to give any spoilers again. But there are a lot of different people groups that this family interacts with, and a lot of uh, racism that they face as they are trying to make their place. And there's this whole narrative of this tension of, you know, who belongs to the West and who, do, you know, who does the West belong to? And it's so well drawn throughout throughout the novel. I just I love that part. I was making so many notes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it is fascinating to me because like that question of like who can belong to the land and or claim the land is a central question of the book. And I, I don't know that it's really truly possible to resolve that question because it had such a contested and bloody history. It's been stolen so many times from so many people, um, including Native Americans, certainly. But also there is a question to me that runs through the book of can you claim ownership of any sort over a land when when human beings have wrought so much devastation upon the environment? Like, what what is that relationship like?
0: Yeah. And I feel like you approached it in so many different ways. And the ending of the book, I think, also lends itself to that theme as as well in a really fascinating way and I've talked to several people who've also finished the book and we all had to reread the ending several times because we're like what and we just like you know you go backwards and I think there's such a skill there for doing that so I really loved it obviously I'm still feeling a lot of book hangover <laughs>
1: uh, since I just finished it yesterday It's so exciting to me to hear that it's having this little life where people are talking about it amongst themselves. Um, I I guess I still haven't seen that in person, so that's that's novel to me and really delightful to hear.
0: Yeah, my co-host Jacqueline and I read it. She read it, I think, last week, and so we've been going back and forth about it. And she's like, "I can't say anything. I don't want to give any spoilers." And then something will happen, and I'll message her. She's like, "I can't say anything." I feel like this book has definitely been at the top of a lot of people's list. So it's been great to have people to talk with about it. Like it has its own life of its own, like you said. Well, you mentioned earlier about the siblings relationship and how they came to your mind as a pair. I really love the dynamic between the two of them because like all siblings, they fight a lot, but they love each other very much and they disagree and they have a lot going on in their lives. And I don't want to give any spoilers as far as what happens in their story, but gender plays a huge role in this novel within the family. And uh, what were the challenges uh, of your approach when you looked at gender in this way uh, in your book?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm really interested um, in how women who are trapped in awful situations can regain small amounts of control through their presentation of gender. So the example I always give is, right, there are certain problematic men and women to this day who will say like, oh, women have it better because sometimes drinks get bought for them or doors get opened for them. What are they complaining about, right? And I'm like, no, obviously that's absolutely false because women would much rather just have equal pay parity than to have a drink occasionally bought for them. But at the same time, there is something in the idea with when you look at the incredibly sexist and problematic world that we live in, and you have to accept that. What can you do to use what's been used against you, um, right? And so there are several female characters or characters born female in this book who have a kind of canny way of looking at the world and wielding sexuality or traditional femininity or or masculinity to their to their benefit. And that's something that's like. Really interesting to me, not only in the in the West, uh, where sort of gender is much more brutal and fixed, but even in modern days, I, I think it's just like a constant problem in question in society.
0: Yeah, I, I really found it interesting the scenes between, uh, between Lucy and her mom, and her mom would tell her uh, they had this encounter with you know, Lucy's teacher. And uh, after they left, her mom says, you know, beauty is a weapon you know, don't be ashamed if you have to use it, but it is a fleeting weapon. And there was like this whole lesson on what it was like to be a woman in this kind of environment that they're trying to survive in. Yeah, yeah. You look at a lot of, like we've mentioned, the role of Chinese immigrants in the west in particular the railroad and what that experience was like were there any stories that you pulled upon when you went to write this story because i feel like it's definitely a gap oftentimes that we have in our knowledge our general knowledge of of the west
1: so there is this famous photo that was taken when the transcontinental railroad was uh completed um, and so it was a day when they joined the sort of Western and Eastern halves of the railroad. And they took this commemorative photo where they hammered a golden spike through to join them. And in the staged photo, there are exactly zero Chinese people, though Chinese immigrant laborers were were the people who built a great part of this railroad. And I remember the first time I encountered this photo, I just like couldn't even believe it. I think I like blew up this like ancient grainy archival black and white photo and like went through every face as like there has to be a Chinese person somewhere, even if just like on the fringes. Right. But no, they were completely erased. And that is the photo that comes up in history books that comes up when you, when you search like completion of the transcontinental railroad. And so there is sort of a reference to that real-life historical event in the book that is something that gets tied together at the end, and I actually didn't hit upon it until in later drafts, but as I kept revising the book, I realized that the the true story of the railroad was also this perfect myth and allegory to talk about erasures in history, um, everything that I've been sort of working towards in the book.
0: We've talked a lot about like mythology and folklore and those kinds of story and that kind of storytelling. Uh, I feel like so many people, though, don't imagine that America, being such a young country, comparatively speaking, has a lot of mythology and, and folklore. So for you, as you were writing this, what does, what does that mean to you, American mythology? What, in our circumstances, does mythology mean to, I guess, Americans? And uh, how does that play out in your storytelling
1: oh yeah that's a great question i think i use mythology a little bit more loosely we don't have you know uh, gods on olympus (laughs) in the way that greek mythology has certainly but i do think there are and this is becoming clearer and clearer to me every day there are certain gods that americans worship perhaps without knowing them gods like uh right uh, like capitalism like the idea of opportunity gods like the idea of uh of westward expansion, right? These are all very, very American deities. And, you know, there are actually folk heroes who uh, espouse some of these ideas, like, you know, the Paul Bunyan story, which I grew up, I actually spent a portion of my childhood in Kentucky and Paul, Paul Bunyan, Johnny Appleseed, right? These are, these are all kind of American gods. And so it's fascinating because it is such a relatively young country, but American narratives, American literature, American movies have had such a huge effect in the world. And so despite the the short period of time, there's sort of like a compressed kind of American story that's being told and then retold and then retold, right? Sort of like movies that are made today, right? Like, like La La Land that are being based off movies of the 60s. And so that, that's the way I think that American mythology is created.
0: It's almost like we are living in some very distant future's past and we are creating the folklore mythology now that will be looked upon centuries from now. I, I've, always, I've always found American folklore very fascinating because we are a young country, but also the way that it's developed is, has happened in a, such a different way. And it's like almost like now we are doing a contemporary modern version of like folklore creation, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, I love that. And you actually just kind of blew my mind a little bit with the idea of us writing writing the stories that people in the future will see as mythology. No, absolutely. And I think it's like you know the kind of news cycle that we live in these days. It just drives that point home. Like literally, you're right. We have a president who's trying to rewrite the facts as we're living them. And one of the great fears for me is like which of these of these uh, statements, the facts, or the, the false narratives are going to actually make their way into history books and actually penetrate the American consciousness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think about that all the time as well. And the narratives that we tell around different presidents uh, as well. And like, you know, looking at even documentaries like the Hillary documentary on Hulu, and how that story is now being told versus the story that was happening like during
1: the event. Mm. Oh man! Did you also know? A side note: There's a, a reimagining of Hillary's life coming out. I think this month or next month, called Rodham. Curtis Settenfield, is that right? Yes, I'm so fascinated by that.
0: I am as well. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to read this. <laughs> like,
1: I'm going to read it. But you know, that to me is like that's that's interesting because that is she is like a a little bit of a deity and probably will be even greater of a deity in like two generations from now right like there's there's not that much of a difference to me between this like re, retelling reimagining of Hillary Clinton's life and right like their retelling and reimagining of Circe's life in that Madeline Miller book
0: yeah those two de- things I definitely think we struggle sometimes to see our own cultural norms oftentimes and so I think that's just so fascinating how it's almost like we're living through these folklore type events. And like, I think of Michelle Obama and her book becoming, you know, it's become a sensation, you know, and she's like this huge figure. Yeah, I think absolutely fascinating. I could geek out for a while, I'm sure, but I'll spare you. Yeah. Now,
1: okay, we'll have to talk again in like 40 years and see if our predictions came true.
0: (laughs) <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Well, I'm sure we could geek out about American folklore and the West and all sorts of things for a while. But uh, before I let you go, uh, I want to ask you, uh, what are some books that you would recommend to our listeners? And these can be other debuts that you have read that might have gotten lost during uh, this pandemic, or maybe just books that inspired you or really anything you'd like to share?
1: Oh, I love getting this question. So um, two books I would highly recommend that came out during this pandemic are Days of Distraction by Alexandra Chang and Lakewood by Megan Giddings. And they're two incredibly different books. One is sort of like, horror-esque um one is a kind of like modern tech world coming of age story but i think they're they're related in how beautifully written they are and how sort of like insightful they are about the way that their their female protagonists see the ills of society and their place within it Um, really really great books to be reading during this time period Um, And I'm just now turning around and looking at my shelf to see what else I would recommend. I'm going to be reading Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid. And one of its strengths in this time is that it's an extremely slim novel. um, And it's just like really, really beautiful. And about this young woman who moves to New York for the first time. Um, it's, It's a really wonderful novel. And I think Jamaica Kincaid is one of the great prose stylists of our time. I've
0: heard so much about her, but I've never picked her up. Is that where you would recommend starting with her?
1: Yes. I think she has more famous books, but Lucy is the one that's always stuck with me. And you can truly read it in like an an evening. Is that what inspired Lucy's name? No, not directly, but maybe subconsciously.
0: (laughs) I love how books do that. They just, like, sit in your mind. All right. Well, thank you so much, Pam, for coming on the podcast. It's been so lovely to talk with you about your book.
1: Yeah, you asked such amazing questions. I'm just going to go think more about this mythology thing and that kind of mind-blowing thing you said about the f- writing, <laughs> writing stories for the future.
0: <laughs> uh, Any time. I'd like to thank C. Pam Zhang for talking to me about her debut, How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is out now from Riverhead. You can find her on her website, C. Pam Zhang, and on Twitter and Instagram at C. Pam Zhang. And of course, all of her information will be linked in our show notes. I'd like to say a special thank you to our patrons who support Makes This Podcast Possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com, and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find me at Katie Winchester. And thanks so much for listening.